0: Hey, Risto here, at George Mason University. I'm here with Tori Shiver, Michael Hempill, and Aaron Santeo, uh, and we're going to discuss the article for another article club um, titled, An Analysis of Physical Education and Health Education Teacher Education Programs in the United States. Um, this was an article that was published in JTPE by Phil Ward and a bunch of his colleagues. Um, I talked to Phil about this paper in episode 309 um, about a little over a month ago, but I wanted to have this as an article club also because I think there's a lot of stuff to unpack here about the quote-unquote state of Pete um, that we learned from this article. Um, I remember this article being first talked about at the Pete Collaborative meetings and when Phil was sharing some of his kind of preliminary uh, results, and I, I found it fascinating... About all of the things that were happening. So, um, that's one of the main reasons that I chose this um, as the kind of article club. Uh, we're from different universities, uh, from different areas, you know, Southern, Mid Atlantic, Hawaii, and then uh, New Mexico. And we have a lot of different experiences based on where we got our doctorate degrees, the programs that we've worked in. All of us have worked in another program than where we are now. Um, And I think we need to talk about these topics openly so we understand the status of our programs in this really, really ever-changing landscape of higher education. Um, You know, for like talking from Virginia, our um, budget just came last week, um, and it was supposed to be here in April, and it's September. Um, I know North Carolina is doing a bunch of cuts. There's a bunch of different... Um, angles here um, but the but the first thing that I wanted to bring up is this huge drop like massive drop in programs and in the article it talks about the 2008 article by Ayers uh, listed 642 PEAT programs so physical education teacher education programs um, then afterwards in 2018 Phil had gotten a uh, kind of like through personal communication and unpublished list that stated 488 articles. So that's 2018. We're down to 488. And then in this study, the uh, published data, they had 417 uh, which basically they found 73 discontinued programs just from 2018 to 2022. Um, and if we go back way, way, way farther back, like 1985, Metzer and Friedman listed 908 programs. Um, so we've been cut in half as a as a field since the 80s, um, dropped over 54% of programs. So I guess my my question to kind of spin this off is like what do you initially think about those numbers? Like, is that is that scary to you where you are, or is that something that you think is just Natural, kind of you know, cutting down because one of the things Phil talked about is not every program loss is a huge loss. Like there are programs that put out one Pe teacher every single year, and they're in a program of three or four pe people and they take methods, courses and social sciences and history and and that's not really developing really high quality physical educators because of the smallness of the programs. So what, what's your initial take on on the lack of, or the dropping of programs?
1: Uh, I would jump in here and say, initially thinking of Maslow's, which I think he referenced in terms of training, uh, basic needs, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is my entire career I've worked for this whole time. And if you're looking at the numbers of drop-offs, thinking about it from my career standpoint, I'm like, I hope I have a job for my entire you know, academic career. Should I be having a back plan just in case? Because another thing he said was, you know, even the quality of the program isn't necessarily going to determine whether or not your program stays in. So, no matter how much maybe we recruit, build, have strength in our program, have support for our program, you know, one person could make that decision to cut it regardless. So, it feels a little out of control, my control. And uh, I think that's nerve wracking. That's my first feeling about it.
2: I think it's something that we have been living. So I guess I wasn't necessarily shocked um, to see those numbers in publication, because as we have grown up, I say that in quotations, in academia, you know, I started my doc program in the late 2000s. And I think that the number of PEAT programs at that time there were big programs that were being threatened and that has just continued throughout all of our careers and so I, do, I guess I didn't know that it was that drastic from the 80s and kind of what had gone on before I had become aware um, in in the academic setting but I think that it's something that we have lived. And so therefore it wasn't a huge surprise to me to read those numbers, but I just think that it is detrimental. I mean, when you think about that in relation to the teacher shortage that's talked about, it's super problematic, right? Because we don't have the programs and we're not producing the students that are needed to be out in the field. And it's this continuous cycle because we're not producing the students. There's unlicensed teachers out in the field that are giving PE a bad name. And then you just have this cycle um, that does not have positive influences in physical education.
3: Yeah, I was thinking about um, doctoral students. So we have some doctoral students here and how do they, How are they they employable? Where can they find jobs? You know, geographically speaking, um, how often do jobs open up? And um, my former institution where I worked my first four years, I looked at their website and their program is closing. And my current job, although we have a PEAT program, I didn't get hired because of the PEAT program. Um, I got hired due to the growth of an interdisciplinary kinesiology program. And I think we're seeing a need for um, people interested in PEAT to be dynamic in their skill set, to be able to contribute to physical activity, to have good research skills that uh, uh, might extend outside of PEAT, um, but still hopefully position them to support PEAT programs. Um, But of course, I think we know a lot of really good PEAT scholars who are now in institutions without those programs.
0: Yeah and I think you know Ohio State is a great example of this of you know they're continuing their doctoral program but they're phasing out their undergrad program and they are keeping their coaching so like coaching is an avenue still for for some people but you know you have a lot of really 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 great scholars that have come through that program. Um, either as doctoral students or who have worked there or still work there um, it kind of shows that you know no program is safe in a way um, if you think about historically and I can't like not make the connection to wrestling program cuts because I feel like I have lived this since I started wrestling in college is the the, one of the first days um, I went in the you know athletic director came in and said like he was supposed to cut us that first year and he came in to talk and he was just like oh i i can't cut these people like let's figure out a way to do it um you know and and he kept us around for 10 years but every single year we were on the brink and every wrestling coach in the nation was like we could get cut at any point pr has to be really good you have to recruit the right people you have to you know invest in good coaches and now like i'm i'm in a field where the same kind of you know tone is there like you have to have good pr you have to recruit well you have to bring in the right faculty and make sure that you play nice and with the administrators because you don't want to end up getting dropped and and that's the thing like you have a new dean that comes in at some university and they look at a full scope. The old dean has been there for 10 years. They're like, okay, everything's good. Everything's good. New dean comes in, new ideas. And they look at a big red line. And they're like, whoa, what, what is this program? They're bleeding money. Like, well, yeah, we're a public institution, and we produce PE teachers. And there's also this other line that is making a ton of money. But like, that's part of a college of education. You are creating educators. And you know, like, I think that's, I think it's problematic when, when there's a, a shift in administration, like you just don't know, you just have no idea. Aaron.
2: So I don't know the literature well, but I guess I'm wondering, um, in general education, we know that there's a teacher shortage as well, right? And I think that those numbers are seen in college of Education. Like student numbers, um, where college of educations are shrinking, just like you know, PEAT heat programs, the students are shrinking within those. But I, I guess, I would l- like to understand that data in relation to alternative teacher certification programs. I think that those have, you know, we're seeing this loss of PEAT programs, but then you also have these other programs, such as Teach for America, that are certifying teachers in different fields. Um, without methods classes, without any of these things that we know are proper pedagogy, right? And what those numbers compare to in relation to the drop of like programs or number of um, certified teachers being produced from these institutions. Um, Because I think that we would probably see as alternative certification programs have rose, are the the other programs have dropped
0: that's a really really great point i i wonder where those numbers are like do they publish those numbers are there more are they just amount same amount of teachers being you know pushed through like i i don't know Uh, i think you know in the article that was the first time i heard when phil wrote in that article that mesa school district in arizona is allowed to they're, they've been given uh, permission by the state to license and educate teachers. Like you have a high school degree, and then you don't go to Arizona State University that has a P program. You go to Mesa Unified School District and go through some professional development, and they toss you in there to teach. Like that to me is wild. Like and same thing with Florida. Like I talked to Sarah Sarah Flori who's down there. Like, they have 10 different ways to be a teacher that's not going through USF. There's so many alternative licensure routes and, you know, I mean, we need career switchers, right? We need career switchers to go, but they are not going back to school. And arguably, like, if you're working at Verizon as a manager and you hate it and you want to be a teacher... You can't quit your job and go back to school if you have a mortgage and a rent or kids or whatever. Like the system doesn't work for us to get traditional career changers.
2: Well, and and thinking about that, Risto, then how do we as Pete faculty design our programs to be attractive to those career switchers, right? Because I think that a lot of people will do alternative certification route because a it's cheaper. universities are super expensive. and b, it takes less time. but we i I know that we personally struggle in our program with quality preparation versus like offering some of those others. like if if we could get them out with student teaching in a year, we would love to do that. but we feel like we're compromising the preparation that they're getting um, in order to do that. And so there's that real fine line, but is the alternative better?
1: Yeah, I think, Erin, to your point, that's what came up for me, thinking about our own programming, because in New Mexico, we have ways, of course, like every state to get licensure outside of the university. And we have high expectations of our students, but if they can just leave, pay less, get the same thing, It's really difficult for us to continue explaining why our standards are so high when they can go be educators with a number of different outlets um, and that they have to pay us for our high standards. So I think some people understand it. Some of our students, of course, really are driven to be the very best that they can be, but others are in a position where they're like, I wanna go make money. And schools are saying, we need you, obviously, so we will take whatever we can get right now. Warm bodies are, are a body to lead this class, so expectations
0: are different yeah it's it's a huge issue in the alternative licensure like there there are students who cannot pass the praxis test right they just they just can't like they have issues with test taking they can they can show that they have competency in those classes but they can't pass it so they end up doing a non-licensure route there are people who come in and email, like for us, like we have people from the outside who are like, hey, I have a kinesiology degree. Um, I need to take these and these courses that the state said that I need to take for me to become licensed or get a provisional license to start teaching. I'm already full-time subbing. It's like, okay, well, our class runs 10 to 11, 15, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And they're like, oh, I teach during that. Like, did you hear my first sentence here was like, I'm currently substituting at this and this place. That's how I make money. And our program does not afford that. So where do they go? Go to, I don't know, Adams State College online or Grand Valley or Grand Canyon State University. And like, they take those online courses and like, I don't know, I've never taken them. So I can't like fully say that they're not high rigor, but I don't think anybody knows or has seen a Grand Canyon or all these like online universities professors at, uh, you know, conferences, like who's teaching those classes, Michael.
3: So what's the, where are the kind of innovative ideas and thoughts on how we sustain ourselves in this? Um, I haven't got a pulse for where that's at. Um, but it feels like, you know, you gave the numbers up top, there's been, um, 50, you know, the programs are cut in half approximately, you know, it's a pretty clear trend. And, um, you can just listen to the dialogue around us at our respective institutions. And hopefully, you know, we, we all will, will be okay. Uh, but, um, the trend will continue for the short and medium term. And, um, so I'm like, so there's this issue of like we want kids to have quality PE teachers, Um, we want programs to be sustained and scholarship to be available, and it's really hard to see what, what some viable pathways are. Like when you talked about Mesa School District, I was like, well, could a university partner with the school district and say, okay, you know, you can train your teachers, but let's have them take 12 credits. I don't know. Um, as a way uh, that may or may not be a good idea, but I'm just trying to locate where some of that thinking is, um, because it doesn't seem like universities are sustainable in, in the current model, although, you know, not every program is going to be eliminated, but you know, this trend has really taken hold.
0: Yeah. And the, and the counter, the counter argument that people talk about in in partnering with, quote unquote, lesser rigorous pathways. So for example, having a person who's a career switcher not go through our program, which is uh, fast-tracked. If you're a kinesiology major, you, you can come back to school for a year and a half, and then you've done your student teaching and you, you can already move on because you've had that competency kind of area in kinesiology, But they could also opt to just take the few classes that the state department of education wants. The issue with that is, is that then they, quote unquote, graduate from Mason, right? So they are take. So if they do that a year and a half, they do student teaching underneath us. It's fine. But a lot of these provisional licenses that you're getting, you're not doing the student teaching. You're just doing the practical, like theory-based classes or certain classes and then you never go out and student teach you just get your provisional license and you're training on the job so when a university partners with allowing students to come through that like individual classes they come out and they're like oh I want to I want to get my uh, degree at Pete or I took a bunch of classes at Mason and I was like well yeah you took classes at mason but you didn't go through our four-year or two-year transfer program or a year and a half student teaching program and i think they are hesitant to sign up for that because of this protection of reputation with that said they are not serving the people who need those degrees so i don't know like should asu reach out to mason be like okay you're gonna do this anyway will come down and help you out so we do part of it right.
3: Well there is a lot of talk about certificates at universities now and that might be the type of thing you'd look at as you know a certificate in assessment in physical education just as an example. Um so it's more narrowly tailored and doesn't imply that you've got the broader liberal arts skill set, you know, but you've you've had some very specific uh, training in past some uh, baseline competencies. Um, so, I think it'd be interesting to see what some models could look like, and if school districts were even interested in that, or if there's other ideas that might um, get us a little bit more traction in in this in this space. Because um, you know, I think a lot of folks right now are we've been riding the kinesiology bandwagon and enrollments have been up but you know those enrollments aren't necessarily stable either as there's like health science majors coming along where these students who want to be a physical therapist can enroll um so you know i think we've got to get ahead of some of this conversation um because it would not be ideal if if we see declines in say kinesiology um at the same time as pedagogies in the place that sits in and of course schools of education are facing similar factors
2: so michael um you were talking about oh man i just lost my train of train of thought but i i think i was going to talk about um when we think about the alternative uh programs and kind of restructuring our programs you were talking about certificates and I feel like we're in this never-ending cycle because when I first um, graduated from Texas and was at my first institution they were in the process of getting rid of all of their certificates that had been created before I got there because certificates weren't rigorous enough and we were trying to like have higher rigor and so it's interesting to hear you you talk about like maybe institutions going back to those certificate programs. I think this is something that we see a lot in education where something happens and then for whatever reason it's disbanded or gone away from, and then we revisit it. I mean, I think you're seeing that with combined programs right now, health and PE programs being combined where there was a big push back in the early nineties or so to make sure that they were separate and that they're separate pedagogies and they should be separate programs and now you're seeing states like michigan require that those programs go back together so i mean i do think that it's interesting and then talking like touching back on something a little bit ago around the Risto, you were saying that your classes are offered during the day i think that that's one of the things that we struggle with the most because we have a certain number of faculty and we want to we want to Um, honor our traditional, what I'll call traditional students that want to be, have that college experience of going to school during the day and and that traditional college experience, but we need to evolve to accommodate students that are somewhat non-traditional, which involves these night classes, but we don't have enough faculty to cover all of those classes and our enrollments aren't high enough to offer two classes so you have to figure out like how to accommodate both of those students and we are one of the only programs at the University of Hawaii right now in our College of Ed that doesn't have what we call um, an an all-state program so which basically means an online hybrid program um, because it's serving all islands we are the only teacher education program in our college that doesn't have classes that are offered at night that teachers are able to work during the day and then take at night, come on the weekend for in like intense classes. If they're in neighbor islands. Um, and logistically, I don't know how we make that work. And I think it's just, again, this never ending cycle of struggles.
0: Yeah. Fullerton had, um, when i was in my last year there fullerton was pushing for friday evening classes and saturday classes to, as a as a pitch like you can do this hybrid but we don't have enough class space for people to teach during these popular 10 to 10 to eleven fifteen nine thirty 9:30 classes like you can't teach those times but if you teach on saturdays you can do a hybrid that's only meeting in this and this time because it's serving also the community of people who, you know, have jobs during the middle of the day. But I think the night classes too, graduate classes, I think everybody's on board, like four to seven, seven to 10. That's when you teach graduate classes. And those teachers who stay on campus late, they want to teach grad classes. And that's what they enjoy teaching. And that's just the time period that we do it in. But undergrad classes, like, I don't know. I don't know if a lot of professors are really, really excited about a 7 to 10 undergraduate class, because I've taught them before. And those, those students have been in work for eight hours. They got off at 5. They've driven to campus. They just ate. And then they're doing a 7 to 10 class. And they're looking at the clock at 9 o'clock going, aren't you going to let us out? Like, I know we have 45 minutes on schedule, but it's 9pm, we shouldn't be here anymore. You know, so I think the structure of it is, is weird, but I want to go back to the certificates because Mason is offering certificates. And there are people who have been putting these, not necessarily in PE, but in the College of Education, they have certificate programs. And there's kind of I don't know, not like a huge push for them, but they're like, hey, if you want to start a certificate program, here's the person to talk to and let's try to figure this out if it's worthwhile to me. I don't know anybody out there that would take a, do a certificate. And maybe I'm, my mindset is different, but like if you, if you look at programs, you're like, okay, a master's degree gives you a pay raise in most states, not every place, but in most states, you get a master's degree, you get paid more. And that's 30 units. A certificate's 15 units and you don't necessarily get any pay bump. Um, but it's like, why, why do you take a certificate if you can get a provisional license by just taking a couple classes, not through a rigorous certificate program that just like lines you up into this box?
2: Like, oh. I mean, I think some states are so like you get, you can get a bump with credit hours, right? So it doesn't necessarily have to be a master's degree. It can be like plus 30 or plus 15. So I think those certificate programs could be good for people that, you know, see the benefit of having some other skill set with a certificate from a university, but don't necessarily want to go back and get a second master's degree or get a master's degree in the first place.
0: But how many people are you going to fill in that certificate program? Like, that's that's the thing, like, master's degree program fully online. I think every program right now is struggling to recruit to them because there's so many teachers who are like, I don't know if I'm going to be in education in five years. I don't know if I'm going to be in education in three years. So they're not jumping on board to the master's degree programs. And I've talked to some other people, including us, who we were like, we have this huge, boom, like 2018, we had a huge class. 2019, we had a huge class. 2020, it's like fall off a cliff and then we're slowly rebuilding. But, you know, when we ask people, why aren't they committing? they're like, well, I don't know if I want to do that. You know, I don't know if I'm going to be in higher education. And that's across, across teacher education in general. But, you know, these certificate programs are, could be one way, like, A certificate in elementary education would be tremendous for people who are just walking in. They've been a fourth grade classroom teacher and they're like, PE looks fun. Let me go teach PE. And they take the PE job without learning how to teach. So
1: We have that option for our classroom teachers through our state. You can just apply essentially for a certificate, not through the university. You can test in, get your certificate and become an educator, so. Um, I mean, certificates supplied through the university, I could see a positive for us, but you get certificates lots of places, similar to getting the uh, ability to teach from lots of places, so double-edged sword, perhaps.
0: Do you have a non-licensure route that you advertise, like, in, in an undergraduate degree, like, can you be a PE teacher, but do you also have, like, personal trainers, or, like, after school or YMCA coaches, leaders could take some of those pedagogy classes, and then they just do an internship at the end. Or is it only like you're in PE, you're going to do your student teaching, and those are the only people you're serving?
1: Our program is exclusively PE. We do allow outside members, like coaches, for example, to take some of our classes, and it does help their coaching minor. But in terms of our cohort model and those that we graduate through our program,
2: it's specific to good ed.
3: We're we're similar to that,
2: yeah. Same. Ours is ours is pretty similar. Although although we do allow a lot of people to take our courses, um, but like the methods courses, you have to be in licensure program in order to take. Um, but we do have some students that we end up graduating non licensure, but I wouldn't say that we advertise that.
0: Is that because they can't pass tests or? What are they going on? Um, I-
2: it's not necessarily a testing thing uh, for us. Um, I think there's, so actually the state of Hawaii doesn't require um, practice tests or anything. So they, they don't have those barriers. Um, but in some instances, maybe the student um, just decides that they don't want to be a teacher after experiencing what teaching is actually like. Um, maybe, so It it's been on both ends that we have Uh, allowed students to go a non-licensure route. Um, Maybe they weren't, like they have to have a certain grade level to pass student teaching or to get um, license. Otherwise they have to repeat student teaching. And so sometimes students choose not to repeat 12 credit hours and they just get, um, they leave our program without licensure and then find an alternative way to get licensure in the state. So they're not graduating from a SATEP, but they still end up, or they might find a different profession, whether they're coaching or YMCA or, or whatever that might be. Um, But it's definitely not something that we advertise as a route to take because we would prefer them to get licensed. And then if they decide to move into a different realm, that's okay, but it's always a good backup. Um, And hopefully they'll enjoy teaching and they'll stay in the profession.
0: Yeah, we we don't have an advertised non licensure route. So same same thing. Um, we haven't really had issues up until like the pandemic, where students were really really struggling to pass these tests, and now we do have some. And it's like, so the non licensure hurts accreditation. So they're degree non-completers, which I learned, because I was like, well, why don't we just like let people choose not to, you know, or do this in different ways we can advertise and broaden our scope and bring more people in, And it's an accreditation issue. If you have program non-completers, that dings your dings your status. And, but like, if you can't pass the praxis, then you can't student teach. And if you can't student teach, then you have to take 12 units, which is the equivalent of student teaching. You have to take 12 credits and then you pass or you graduate as a a non licensed physical education BSED um, undergraduate. But to me, I'm like, well, let them student teach and still graduate without a license. Because we have students who now are in the job market, they're unlicensed. They haven't done student teaching because they took the 12 units of whatever credits, so they have the minimum 120 to graduate. Um, But then when I talk to the teachers who are trying to hire them, I'm like, I don't know how good they are as teachers because they never student taught. But if if we would let them fully understand, like, if you can't pass the praxis, you cannot get a license, but we would prefer for you to student teach and then you graduate non-licensed, you've done everything, the only mark against you is you don't have a Praxis passing score. And I think a lot more people would hire that person than a person who's never student taught.
2: I don't know, it's it's a double-edged sword I feel like because I mean, in some instances that might work because you just might have a student that is not a good test taker. We know that there's a lot of issues with standardized tests, right? Um, but in some instances in our program, those that go non-licensure, like they're not prepared to to be in the classroom. But they leave and they're like, "Oh, I'm a UH graduate," and so people automatically assume that they went through our program with rigor, and that's not necessarily the case, right? So then they get into the school and they're like wait you graduated from UH and then there's like all this talk about like what's going on with the PEAT program at UH because like their people stink but in reality that person was never certified through us right um so I don't know I mean there is a danger in that but I mean I would argue that they're probably more prepared than other alternative routes right so then that is that rigor argument again I might change the subject here, shift a little bit. One of the things that, um, you know, I don't think was a surprise to anybody in the article was the lack of diversity in teaching. And I think that this has been something, I feel the field has been really trying to do better with recruiting teachers of color. And it was really disheartening to not see that shift. in in teachers out there in PE programs, at least in higher ed, um, and I guess I just want to have a conversation about this. Like, how do we do better? How do we recruit um, teachers of color and and keep them in the field to be able to serve our diverse student population?
0: Yeah, and and just as a as a caveat to that, I don't think the field has done really well in in recruiting teachers of color. Um, but the the statistic that they provided was of the forty nine faculty that they interviewed, one from each state, excluding Alaska. So they didn't do a faculty survey. It's not a full faculty survey as other uh, other papers have done before. Um, meaning they just took the forty nine teachers or forty nine people who finally answered their call to do an interview. And so that's why the percentage that they have in females too is like 88% versus a 50-50 split before when it was done in a different way, which I think is also interesting is because 88% of the participants were females who answered that call to say like, yes, I will do this survey, says something, or it just actually had like higher percentages of certain demographic groups, meaning maybe they are like more ready to have their voices heard. They want to participate in this kind of quote-unquote census. But uh, I just wanted to put that out there because I think we've seen that it's not super diverse, right? But this is also just a partial of the 417 programs uh, across 49 states. This is only looking at 49 programs out of that 417 which could be a representative sample and could not but what do you what do you guys think whereas why are why are we still stagnant
3: i was wondering about i'd love to understand a lot of these factors in relation to other disciplinary areas and maybe like kind of core areas versus non-core areas and If, um, if there's anything to learn um, from that, Uh, but the diversity issue is, you know, it's one that really, I think we've struggled with, I think, um, to some extent in K-12 representation of teachers, and then that carries over into graduate studies. Um, You know, I think recruitment's important, uh, but it's one of these challenges you can't recruit your way out of necessarily. I mean, unless literally everybody is, um, setting aside an assistantship to recruit somebody from an underrepresented background, you know, you would need like dozens of faculty to be doing that. And the other thing is we have to think about when we recruit someone, you might have to think about your research differently. The models that I've been exposed to for PhD is that you do the research of your advisor, um, you know, and that for a lot of good reasons, because then you can learn from their skill set, but people from a different background might have different interests, Um, and so we have to find ways to think about that differently to create space for them um, in programs, so I think that's, you know, a challenge. I've known a lot of people from underrepresented backgrounds who've got into these programs and studied, um, you know, something uh, related, but, but not quite physical education. So something in after school, something in athletics, uh, something in an adjacent area that doesn't um, put them under our umbrella, and they tend to find homes and other spaces. The final point that I was thinking about is just like the public face of physical education um, has never represented diversity at, you know, whether it's kind of K-12 or higher ed. Um, this is not to say there hasn't been people who are from different backgrounds, but that that's never been like the um the image of what's kind of the the representation. We've seen this discussed, like the teachers of the year um and things like that. And I'm not sure, like when I look around, I'm not, I don't know enough about other disciplines, but like when I go to AERA, for example. There is. It is clear that they have a very diverse leadership and have for the past fifteen twenty years. Um, and if you go to sessions, I mean, it's it's very clear. And we've just never um, been able to find that.
1: I think those are all really good points. Thinking about you know the PhD level, um, thinking about undergrad level, are we're a Hispanic serving institution, so. University of New Mexico is predominantly Hispanic. We also serve a high level of indigenous students. And in conversations with them about potential barriers to them maintaining their position in our undergrad program or ways that we've helped overcome, first is our PhD students teach a lot of our classes and we have a diverse group of PhD students. So the representation that they're seeing in their educators is there. They definitely very much connect with our teacher or our PhD students who look like them more so than others. So I think that's been powerful, interesting to see. The other thing is New Mexico has made a lot of initiatives towards uh, funding undergraduates to respond to the lack of teachers in the schools. So not so much our university, but through the state and federal funding, we have like workforce connection funding. So our students can get up to $9,000 a semester uh, to support their tuition and living and then in student teaching they get paid I think 10,000 and their cooperating teacher gets paid uh, as well a thousand dollars so financially getting that support has been big time because otherwise they're working full-time and they just burn out before they can finish the program.
0: And and, an outside of higher education kind of example is uh, when I um, started dating my wife who was in, um, was in publishing in New York, she was, there was a big uproar about how undiverse uh, the publishing industry is. And a lot of it is because publishing is in New York. If you wanna work for a major publishing house, you're in New York City, but the associate or the assistant editors and the editorial assistants, like the bottom rung of the ladder, Their salaries are like 27,000 a year living in New York City. So it's a prestigious job that people who go to really good schools, have master's degrees, need to take to rise up the ladder. And so then you look at it and, like, well, who do you think is going to be there? It's the people who have parents who have money to pay them to live in New York City and subsidize that employment or that, that salary. So then when they go in and they become associate editors, it's all of this like wealthy children's people, like who are then choosing what books to buy, what books to uh, push out. So they had a very undiverse um group. And I think that that a lot of it comes down to pay. Like I think Tori, if you know, New Mexico, if you're giving undergraduate students enough money to be able to do the things that they really passionately want to do and you provide that avenue it's more likely that they're going to be there and if you don't right so i mean we've we've started allowing um students to split their student teaching semester across a year it's a brand new initiative it's this idea that certain people who have kids or other jobs or whatever they can't take off 17 weeks to just not work. They can't afford it. So you they can do Tuesday, Thursdays during the fall, and then Monday, Wednesday, Friday during the spring, or like we're working with students to be able to do that because that is a huge barrier to graduation. And when people find it, it's it's really tough to do.
2: So in Hawaii, similar, I don't know if it's similar or not to New Mexico, but there's been a lot of initiatives to try to foster students and individuals that are from Hawaii to teach. And one of the initiatives that's funded through the state um, legislator, as well as the Department of Ed is called the Grow Your Own Teacher Program. And so they fund post bachelor certificates um, or masters like master degree levels certification programs for people that are coming back um, to school to get certified for teaching, kind of enticing them. But then again, it goes back to these struggles around our program offers the classes during the day. And so we have very limited amount of students that can go through what we call our GU programs um, because they need to be working. Whereas our other teacher education programs are more successful in recruiting those students because their classes are offered at night and those people are actually teaching in emergency higher positions in the schools already. So they're getting paid during the day and then their tuition is covered at night through these grow your own teacher programs. And so it really is beneficial for the students. And I think that that has been really beneficial to recruit students um, of a diverse nature because they're able to, to work, and then they're able to have their tuition paid for, and I know that that is something that is really important um, for our students, especially um, you know students that don't have that don't come from a family of money that might be first generation college students, um, and so I think that those types of initiatives are really important to helping bring diversity into the teaching forces, figuring out a way for students to be able to keep a full-time job but then also get the tuition paid for
0: well the tuition paid for is is huge like imagine how how easy it would be to recruit highly qualified teachers to say hey if you come to this state institution the state is paying for your tuition if you become a teacher like like okay i don't know what Uh, what I want to do with my life, looking at computer science, engineering. Oh, wait, I don't have to pay for tuition if I go to become a teacher and teach math or teach science or teach English. Yeah, I'd like to be a teacher. Like, I think that that's, those are the initiatives. Like, if you really want to recruit people, I mean, that's a fantastic program. And I haven't heard that from the, like, we've definitely had, like, grow your own, like, programs here that are been talked about but i don't think that they're paying for the tuition and that's that's huge
3: i was thinking i mean that really raises like what we need is a really appropriate policy response to all this because you know you talk about teacher shortages the representation issue um there's just been a lot of workforce disruption I, i was watching the news this morning about the uh you know, the auto workers are on strike, and, um, you know, apparently they're negotiating a pay raise of, you know, 20 to 40 percent, and I don't, I mean, teachers haven't seen anything beyond the cost of living raise in quite a while, and so you're seeing these other industries um, get that, and then the inflationary pressures that we're facing, so it seems like some type of a a workforce kind of reset is, coming and hopefully we can have a policy response right now it seems like the policy discussion is all around just divisive um ideas that are kind of politicized um but i mean it seems like that's i feel like that might be our only way out of this mess is um some type of investment in education that would then incentivize students to get back into Uh, universities you know who you know we're talking about the fiscal cliff here with with the decline in high school graduates um so you know I suppose advocacy is one answer I mean you know I know we can't do a lot individually and even our field is pretty small but certainly some advocacy um, for education reform and some policy that would really address like move away from some of these things that um, don't seem to be that prominent in education, you know, the the book bans and stuff that I'm, I don't know that it uh, really improves kids' outcomes uh, to getting to like addressing some of these things that would transform kids' lives.
1: I think I always go back to policy too, as much as I hate uh, having to refer to policy at all times. It seems like it's the only next step, but then reading this article and also firsthand experience that, Policy doesn't always determine the outcome. Um, So how do we make sure policy is being upheld? So for example, in the actual article or it said, I think 506 schools in New York City uh, did not have a licensed physical educator, which violated state requirements for PE. And I've seen that in a number of schools where again, because they're so short staffed, um, they're just kind of working with what they have despite policies saying otherwise. So I don't know what could be done in terms of manpower to support someone actually checking in and making sure schools are following these rules or teachers are following these rules or universities aren't even.
3: Well, they should just hire all those teachers from Cortland because the article said they they were like the outlier every time. So clearly they're graduating students in New York that they could be hiring. So, um.
2: <laughs> But are those students from Cortland, are is. I think there's more to unpack there, Michael, because why aren't they going to those jobs that are open right in the inner city? Um, there's probably a lot to unpack within that statement, right there so we know that New York is producing all of these p e teachers. Where are they going?
3: yeah, that's yeah, that's such an important question. I think so in my to my class tonight we talk about, we do kind of a series and we talk about urban PE and then we talk about rural and we talk about the suburbs and my, I suspect a lot of them go to kind of the suburbs, these, you know, well-resourced schools, um, which as a young teacher, you might understand, hey, you know, being able to go where you actually have equipment and um, things like that. But um, yeah, I think that's something that's not, we haven't unpacked in our kind of scholarly discourse, because uh, I, I had trouble finding appropriate readings for it. Um, and it was interesting, because we tended to like name urban PE. Like, you can type it in the search bar and find articles. And you can type rural PE, and you can find a few articles. But we don't name suburban at all. So that was one of our class discussion points. But yeah, thank you for pointing that out. I think that is an important uh, distinction
0: you raised there. And They said that at the time of the study, they had 928 undergraduate students who, if they pass the praxis and they're going to be licensed. So they're uh, pushing out hundreds of teachers. And I know that, you know, Cortland around there, like they allow their student teachers to go back to Long Island and go back to where they, um, where they grew up to do their student teaching and live at home for that semester because Portland just doesn't have enough schools to house 200 student teachers and they don't have enough supervisors to do it. And, you know, they've, they've been pushing to try to have more diverse experiences, but that's the same thing. Like if you're in a rural community and you have a, or a land grant university or something like that, how do you get that diverse experience? Like you, you really can't. Like if you're staying around campus in a university town, you don't have the opportunity to do an urban experience and then you're very unlikely to go do that. I think Cortland was an outlier and they talked about it and they asked permission actually to um, name Portland as a university. So they, they agreed that their name was going to be released, but you know, that university is so giant in that program. They have 19 tenure track faculty. Um, imagine going to work and having nineteen peat educators like in the hallway like one wing is just peat educators. Um, you know it, it comes with other issues like everybody has to teach from the same text because all of the five sections of elementary methods have to produce the same knowledge to move into secondary methods with five different educators and um, but I think there's a spin-off to this and if you take Cortland out, they said a median kind of size of a program is around fifty eight, meaning they're graduating about eighteen to twenty per year. um do you feel like that is a healthy program like um i don't I asked Phil that question. He didn't necessarily say that numbers alone match that, but where are you like if you feel comfortable saying like what size? the program that you're in are you around that are you graduating around 18 to 20 a year
2: we are not we're a small program um and we're we're the only licensure program in hawaii at the undergraduate level that has a full like physical education program so i think there's another university that license in physical education but it's through a master's program and they do not take PE methods courses, it's like a general education with an emphasis in PE. Um, And our program is small. We have about 20 undergraduate students, not including our post-bacc certificates. So we're graduating maybe five, three to five a year, given on the cohort, Um, given the cohort and the semester, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. Um, So to me, 58 seems, like a healthy number. It seems sustainable. It's not too big. It's not necessarily too small. Um, but we're definitely on the lower end of those numbers.
3: We're right on par with what Aaron described um, on the low end and trying to figure out uh, a strategy to grow, which is is tough in the current context at the state level.. Um, I you know 58 I feel confident in saying we would feel comfortable um even in like a program review context you know where they're looking real close to scrutinize programs that uh particularly given our history with physical education um that that would be sustainable but um it's hard to right now it's hard to see how we get there um so yeah, fingers crossed that we could figure that out.
1: Yeah, I would say similar. We're maybe a, just a few more graduates a year than that, but not a big difference in terms of size as Aaron and Michael. Um, we predominantly, our master's program brings in most of our funding, and we have a large PhD program, um, but our undergraduates are limited. Um, recruitment efforts have been happening, but similar to all education programs, it's there's just not the numbers, no matter the effort put in, at least at this point. So like Michael said, we're hoping for change in the future, still working on it. But seems as though it's kind of repetitive process without the outcomes at this point.
0: Yeah, I've looked at our numbers across the last like decade. And I think 2010, 2011, before I was in this program, we had 120 undergraduates. And now we're Last year, I think we are around 50 to 60. Um, so we're kind of in there, still dropping. Like um, on my first years at Mason, we were in that 18 to 20 range that we we're graduating every year. I think now we're, you know, and that was just 2018. We're still doing 18 to 20. Um, but I think now in the last years, we've re- we started offering classes once a year instead of twice a year. So we've shifted a couple of those things. And when those program changes happened, and the pandemic was come in, so those people who came in were less. And so, and I think last year we probably graduated seven to eight, but then we also had one semester class of 17 student teachers who graduated all at the same time. And so it's just like kind of mixed, but I think, we're averaging towards that, um, but you know we spent a lot of time, a lot of energy in making these video advertisements for our undergraduate program. Um, we got the College of Education to pay for like a videographer to come in. We staged everything. We got everything set. We produced really good videos of our undergraduate program that our goal was to send it to all of the teachers in the local area, community colleges. It's posted on our website. So when you land on it, you see this like three minute video about what a physical education career looks like. We have alumni, faculty, students. um, Everybody's in like, it was a really well done video. And we launched it in the spring. It has 65 views on YouTube. And it's like, well, that sucks. <laughs> you know, like we put a lot of effort in this and yes. All right. May, I don't know. Maybe YouTube doesn't count when you click on our website, which I'm sure it does. Um, but then we did a master's degree program too. And I mean, that video has probably been viewed 50, 60 times, you know, and I don't know, like we, we did a lot of advertisement. We talked to a lot of people. We, Have good like we have a good reputation in the local area, and I just don't know how else we recruit. And I I will boast that two years in a row I brought in a top twenty five NCAA wrestling recruiting class. So I know how to recruit a little bit, but it is just not the same. I I don't know how to bring in PE teachers. You can advertise. We sent it to all the county supervisors district supervisors in this area they all have the video we've asked them to send it out clearly people are just not clicking I don't I don't know
1: and the beyond that you know thinking about my training probably all of our training I have zero training in recruitment So, it's like learning a new tool entirely. And when you're trying to do everything else related to a tenure track position, it is difficult to take that role on. And even beyond that, you know, not just me, our program has three people, but one's a department chair. So, it's really two. And trying to operate classes, research, service, including recruitment all at once, like one person just can't do it all. And that goes, you know, beyond me to K 12, even thinking about those educators, how much they're trying to take on layers up and up and up and our students are taking on. There's just only one person can only do so much. Then you get burnout and then you get a lack of uh,
2: outcomes there. So. Well, and Risto, like you have these videos, so, but people have to be interested in being a PE teacher in order to click on the video, right? And so I think there's a disconnect because People aren't interested in going into education right now. Like it's not just a PE thing, right? And so that I think is part of the problem because you have to get them to want to be a teacher first. Like a teacher is a good, being a teacher is a good thing. Not this like terrible profession that is overworked, is underpaid and we're not there. I mean, I think that, I have so many open PE jobs that schools email me about every semester and say, do you have any teachers, certified teachers that can fill these jobs? And I'm like, I don't have any graduates. My graduates are already placed in emergency hire positions, and they're looking to get hired in those positions once they graduate from their student teaching. And part of that is because back in the day when the current te- the current workforce that is out there, there was not teaching jobs available. Like it was so hard to get a physical education teaching job. So those are people that are out in the workforce. Now they have kids that are going to college and their message, don't go into teaching. It's the worst profession because of X, Y, and Z. There's no, not going to be jobs when you graduate. And so I feel like I'm forever Overcoming this narrative that isn't necessarily a true narrative anymore in terms of job placement. It is a true narrative in terms of it's a very underpaid profession. And so, how do you uplift education so that teachers want to, people want to go into education and then get them into physical education?
0: Yeah. I'm- I think that's, I think that's tough. The you know, teacher education research shows that we've lost public confidence in, in the sense of recommendations. So it's not just the teachers, it's the parents, the uncles, the aunts, Everybody's saying like, you, you don't want to go into teacher education, you know, or, or to education to be a teacher. And I think that's, it's tough, because, you know, the climate is just terrible like it's so bad like i'm i'm thinking about not bringing up politics but i will bring up politics there are people running for president that will say that they will in their one of their first days in office they will get rid of the department of education like that's to me that's bonkers like i understand states have departments of education but there is a purpose for the department of education and they're supposed to be a secretary of education. Like these people are in these positions that are really, really consequential. Like the research that gets done, the teacher education, the accreditation, all of this stuff to keep the high level of it. You know, in this country right now, you have people who say like, oh, we don't we don't want to have a department of education. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> that's pretty yeah. bad.
3: Brazil, one thing in this whole kind of, uh, schools being under the radar kind of politically is like everything that happens seems to fall on teachers. Um, so like, you know, they're now you can, uh, challenge if there's a reading or an assignment, uh, and what all that means is like the teacher is going to have to answer all these questions, um, about their curriculum and what book they use and why they chose it. And, um, you know, when they didn't have time anyway. And so like I had to teach, uh, A neighbor who's retiring and he was like I had to get out because I felt like a TSA agent and then I went to like a high school the next day I was like oh my god it's literally every high school in the county schools has a it it looks just like the airport they go through the radar the the um, uh, metal detectors but who has to do that it's the teachers who actually man those it's not some new security force that's funded it's the teachers so now they have to unload book bags when it goes off and see what's in it and so it all just kind of lands on them um, as a kind of an extra layer over and over again and um, because it's not like these the folks who are saying let's um, get rid of books or things like that are saying let's fund it (laughs) and have a a, you know assistant principal for book banning to oversee this it's really just all falling on teachers to do absolutely everything and they didn't have they were stretched too thin to begin with and
0: then the initial step that they take is they say if you choose to teach with these books you uh will get fined or you'll get fired so if they have these in these so there's not like a published list of these are not allowed but if this topic comes up you could get fired if this is in your library so you just like stop everything you take the most drastic measures to clean up shop and um, make sure that you're not teaching the wrong stuff according to a law that's been passed. And it's so different from state to state, you know, like, and the fact that students can report you like as a teacher to say, Oh, this person said this, like, you're always watching your words. You're thinking about what to do and, Like, oh, this is what I was taught to teach in my undergraduate preparation program, or I have a master's degree in, you know, literature and education, and I want to teach, you know, this specific book. And students can just, like, type an email out in class, send it to the state or send it to the principal and call you out for that. It's just wild.
1: I'll add not to be too negative about it, but all the teachers that I've worked with in PLCs or just discussions with our students going out to the schools. It's been a while since I've talked to one that's like, I love my job. Things are really going my way. Uh, Most everyone is experiencing high levels of stress, feeling marginalization to the extreme level. They don't even feel like they're doing PE because they're being asked to do so many other things. So I'm teaching these methods courses and probably, I mean, our graduates are leaving ready to teach PE, but the reality is, will they? And will it look at all like what I would expect it to look like if it were a quality program because of the supports they have in place? So Truly big picture. I'm starting to wonder, you know, when recruiting, I'm like, I gotta be honest, but also how honest do I be? Like, yeah, when you get out there, everything you've learned, who knows if you'll get to use it and who knows if, you know, parents or administrators are going to be supportive of you or even students it's difficult to say to my students that they should go into teaching when I see teachers really really struggling
0: yeah so uh, I think throughout this whole entire conversation we've had for a little over an hour I have felt a very different vibe than any article club that we've had I feel like it's it's been negative it's been like oh my god doom and gloom and I and I love that you brought that up Tori because most of the time when we talk about these it's like this innovative research topic or this or that and we have these conversations and every now and then there's like a dose of you know criticism or negativity and then it's mostly like what's going well but I think the topic of discussion is serious and to be honest there hasn't been a lot of positive things that came out of that that study so i'm going to turn this around because we're going to wrap up i i want you to say something that gives you hope in this environment that we're in like the students that you teach the the faculty that you work with the research that you're doing what gives you hope let's end on a positive note doesn't have to be long but what what gives you hope
1: I'll add to this, our PhD students that are going to be future teacher educators give me a lot of hope because they, we have a diverse group and they are all so motivated to be the very best educators they can be and to make the best educators uh, in the K-12 schools. So when I see that, I'm like, you know, the jobs stay open for them. I could see them truly making a difference.
3: I'll say the students, uh, ninth grade students at a school, Dudley High School in East Greensboro. It's one of the kind of foundational institutions in our community. And we've worked with them for years now. But we do a program now around hip hop and basketball. And um, it really brings out their um, skills and interests. They write uh, they write their own, some of them write their own um kind of rap song and lyrics about basketball. And it helped for me, it helped reframe uh, basketball and physical education, because a lot of times basketballs the roll out the ball activity. And so we try to minimize that. And um, it reframed it as this positive thing that students love. And so and you know, we're in this 50th anniversary of, of hip hop. And it's been a really cool opportunity to pair learning with The sport of basketball and see students really active and just super um, sophisticated in presenting their their knowledge base?
2: So for me I think that a lot of initiatives that we have tried to or that we have been thinking about enacting are things that we have been talking about and I think that that gives me hope for our program. I think that we're headed in the right direction. We have some things in place and other things being thought about to be put in place, to move in a direction where we can grow our program, try to recruit diverse teachers into the workforce and support them um, with diverse mentors. I think the other thing that gives me hope that was not talked about today is, you know, I work with a, a grant that's funding funded through the Native Hawaiian Education Fund um, with the U.S. Department of Education. And the U.S. Department of Education saw a benefit for students around health and physical education and kind of creating um, PE teachers and health teachers to be more culturally responsive and embracing native flying culture within health and physical education programs and put a lot of money towards helping us help our teachers and our state connect to students. And I think that that is hopeful. I think that having programs that really are trying to serve communities and students and help them experience quality health and physical education, is important and it can only help in our recruiting process to for teacher educators and and helping to get good teachers into our school.
0: Yeah, and and my my thing that gives me hope is my fed 275 class, field and invasion games. I've not taught this class in like 3 years and I love teaching this class because it's either first-time freshmen or fresh community college transfers who are coming in and, uh, you know, I, I have a student in there who's a business major and I, cause we open up our all our lower level classes to anybody. And I have a student in there who's in there. He's taken another fed class and I walked up to him. I'm like, when are you gonna change your major? Like, it sounds like you just keep coming in, you keep coming back for more and you really enjoy these classes. He's like, I think it's probably about time. Like, you know, he's gonna be a degree major that changes. and students like in the last two years I haven't been you know playing basketball with anybody after class because I wasn't able to run and jump and I've had some like back issues but you know like I played pickup basketball with my class after class all four weeks every week afterwards they're like you sticking around I'm like yeah yeah I'm gonna play basketball with these students and like they're they're into it they're coaching they're subbing They're passionate, and I think that we need to remember that, yes, there are people who are telling others to not go into teaching, but there are awesome students in our program who are going to be great teachers. And it's the same thing as that when you're teaching and you have that one student who's misbehaving, you put all your energy into that one student that's misbehaving and you tag your day based on this one incident. Whereas we had 24 students in that elementary class that were, you know, on great behavior, they were learning, they were, you know, engaged. And I think that we need to remember the students in our programs because there's some great future PE teachers in those programs. So then that gives me a lot of hope. Um, so we've gone a long time. So I'm gonna wrap this up. I, I appreciate all of your viewpoints and and coming on again. Um, And uh, we'll be back again with some new episodes uh, next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Russell. Thank you.